the next episode of Nerd Clicks and Chill will start in three, two, one, zero. Hey everybody, this is Nick. And this is Carrie. And we are Nerd Flicks and Chill, and it's time for another Westworld recap. This is going to be Season 2, Episode 8, Kiksuya, which means remember in Lakota. Uh, But before we get into the episode, Carrie, this is actually one of the last episodes that you're going to be recording in the Orlando area. Do you want to tell our audience what it is you've got coming up here in the uh, near future? Yeah. Um, at first, when I listened to you, I was like, you made it sound so permanent. Like, this was my last <laughs> episode ever. No, that's not the case. Uh, so I've kind of, I've kind of alluded to in the past. If you've been a long time listener with us, you've probably put together some pieces that, you know, I have a, I have a past, uh, well, and a future in the entertainment industry. Um, I used to be on tour years ago. And uh, this coming weekend, I am heading back out on tour uh, with a show called Walking with Dinosaurs. I am one of the lead puppeteers for Walking with Dinosaurs. Um, I previously was on the North American tour, and I am getting ready to embark on a European tour. So if you are a listener of ours over in the UK and Europe, and you plan on going to see Walking with Dinosaurs, I will be in that show. Come and say hello. That would be really cool. Um, Yeah, so we're going to keep the show going. It might be a little bit different, but we'll be doing, what, weekly updates, little snippets as to where I am and what's going on. And first stop is Glasgow for rehearsals for a couple weeks before the tour starts. That's awesome. So every week you're going to be basically recording from a different European location. Yeah, pretty much. For the first couple weeks, we are in the same spot in Glasgow uh, rehearsing the show. So that will be kind of, um, well, for what the next like three or four episodes will be in the, I'll be in the same place. But then after that, yes, I will be in a different European city every week, pretty much for the next year. Uh, I will be coming back home um, every little bit, um, like every three months or so I'll come home. So we'll do an episode when I come home. But um, fingers crossed that my my locations are good for recording. So who knows what I'm going to run into. Need I need good internet and I need quiet. So I don't know if I'm going to have either one of those. So we'll see what happens. Well, congratulations to you. You totally deserve it. And I am super excited to hear all of your updates from all the great cities that you visit, all the great restaurants that you eat at. I'm looking forward to getting the uh, carry updates. Oh, yeah. And I plan on trying to visit as many movie locations throughout Europe as I can. Of course, Harry Potter and Game of Thrones are at the top of my list. Um, so yeah, I will be hitting a lot of those locations. So I will be posting those. Well, um, maybe I'll do it on the Nerdflix and Chill, um, Twitter, but I do have my personal Twitter, mostly on Instagram. If you guys want to follow me, it's NFC as in Nerdflix and Nerdflix and Chill. So NFC underscore Carrie. And if you don't know how to spell my name, the proper way to spell it is K-A-R-I. 
So you can follow me over there if you're interested. Awesome. Awesome. So let's get into Westworld Season 2, Episode 8. Now, this episode, I think, is one that um, you could say that you don't usually like these kind of episodes this late in the season. Like, I think a lot of times people like to keep the forward momentum of a story going and not necessarily go back into the past. But I think this is an exception and this actually may be my favorite episode of this show ever. Oh, wow. Of both seasons. Yeah, both seasons. I think wow. this is as good as they've ever done. Yeah, I I thought it was beautiful. I mean, very similar to the episode that we got a few episodes ago uh, in Shogun World, where we didn't get a lot of forward momentum in the overall plot, but I just really story rich episode that like with that one i felt this one could almost be its own little mini series or its own story within you know the big series it could almost exist on its own yeah and i i i believe if i'm not mistaken way back in season 1 after they had filmed the first, I believe it was four episodes, or maybe it was the first six episodes, they actually went back and did a rewrite of most of the back half of the first season. They restructured a lot of story, and one of the things that they got rid of was a uh, kind of a Ghost Nation arc that was there. And I'm wondering how much of that Ghost Nation arc that they cut from season one has been repurposed here uh, with this episode. So I'm curious to see how much of that was part of that original plan. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I haven't seen um, if they've posted like the little behind the scenes featurette that they do with every episode. I haven't seen if it's been posted for this one just yet. I know it wasn't last night, but they usually post them the next day. I wonder if they would allude to that in there at all. They didn't really, I know there is one out there that's only about three minutes long. Um, and they, they didn't really talk about it. They, they kept it mostly on, uh, this particular episode and kind of, you know, the work that was done, particularly by the actors involved. Mm. So let's get into the recap of this thing because I love this episode. I've watched it three times since it aired. Uh, and I just love it more and more each time that I watch it. So uh, the opening scene is really, uh, we get the man in black crawling, you know, trying to will himself to not die. A Ketchita comes up on him, tells him that he's not dying there, uh, takes him back to his camp, and he sees Maeve's daughter. And just in this opening scene, um, we're getting this kind of interaction between Akechita and the man in black and this understanding that Akechita knows of all the man in black's deeds. Right. There's, oh gosh. Okay. I don't even know where to go into it just yet, but um, I've mentioned before, um, I'm just going to call him Aki because that's what his, uh, um, partner or his spouse called him in here. So I'm going to call him Aki. Um, I've mentioned it before how I love the design of this character. The makeup is so cool. And I loved that we got to see just so much more of it. I didn't really notice before his hands, how he even has the uh, black paint on his hands as well. For some reason, I just, I loved that. 
Um, one of the things that really blows me away about him and his makeup design and his performance is that this makeup quite literally masks his face. And with that as an actor, that can be really difficult and, and limiting because it's covering his face, basically. It, it's masking all of his expression. And you really use that a lot as an actor. I mean, look at um, Maeve, at Tandy Newton, how much she's able to express with her face without really saying much. He doesn't really have the opportunity to do that when he's in his full Aki makeup. But what he is able to do and how he is able to get across just a, a stellar performance. I was so entranced by him in this episode. What he was able to do so plainly was just gorgeous and so multifaceted and and so simple with what he was given. Yeah, he's excellent here. The name of the actor is Zahn McLarnon, and he's been a character actor in a lot of different things over the years. One of the things that he got a lot of publicity for in his recent work was the work he did on Fargo, where he was very good in, I believe it was the second season of Fargo. Uh, but he is terrific here. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say that this episode is entirely his. Oh, yeah. That's not a stretch at all. Yeah, he's he's terrific here. And I like what you're saying about the makeup. I thought it was really interesting the way that the white makeup kind of has that cracked, textured look. It almost looks like it hurts to have it on. It's just one of those really great little subtle details. It's not like a smooth paint job on the guy. It's kind of cracked and weathered and aged and textured. So right. it looks really awesome. Yeah, there was an article that just came out recently in The Hollywood Reporter with an interview with him. And he talks about the makeup itself and how he didn't necessarily say that it was painful, but it was... It was like, you're definitely aware of it because it's not just like wearing regular makeup. It was almost makeup and glue kind of mixed in together so that it would have that peeling, cracking look to it. And it was almost like after every take, he had to be touched up because it would just start to flake away. And in some shots, you can see where it's uh, in some places, it's almost just completely falling off of him. But, um, but they would have to go and touch it up and, I think he said it took about two hours for him to get into it. And I'm not sure how long it would take to get off because I'm sure it was not easy. Um, but he said the whole time he just kept thinking about these amazing actors. And I think he used like the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, for example, that they would be in these massive uh, prosthetics makeup and, you know, they'd be in the makeup chair for five, sometimes six hours, which would sometimes be an entire work day on its own. And that's before they actually get to set. So he just kept thinking about that. You know what? There's people that have done much more than this. I can do this. It's only two hours. I can do this. And I just, I think a lot of people that aren't involved in these types of productions don't realize the work that it goes into 
to do this kind of makeup. I mean, just as the act, not only as the actor that has to wear it, but the people that have to apply it. I mean, think about the people that apply it. They have to get there even before then to start setting up, to get their area ready. Then they apply the makeup on him. Then they have to be there continually through the shoot to touch it up and then also stay afterwards for him to remove the makeup. And then they have to clean up afterwards. So they put in more time than even the actor does. It's just, it's astounding. And I think a lot of people don't really think about that part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, with, with regards to this opening scene, I think if there is one thing that this does establish, it is that Ghost Nation has been watching. They have been watching. And they know who the man in black is. They know the things that he is responsible for. And I think that's the one big takeaway from this opening scene. Then this scene ends with Akechida walking up to Maeve's daughter. And we don't really know quite what to make of it because it then transitions into this other scene where we get the flashback of Maeve and her daughter, but then also uh, Lee getting help for Maeve, having them check her code. So we have that, that kind of transition from that scene into a flashback and then into a Maeve scene. And initially, upon first viewing, you don't quite know what's going on yet. Right. But it makes a lot more sense on repeat viewings. Definitely. I've watched this episode three times now. And I think <laughs> so far, every time that I've seen it, I've, I've gotten something else from it. I didn't I didn't really get all of it the first time. And the second time, it's like, okay, now I get this part of it. And then the third time, it was like, oh my gosh, I didn't even catch that the first time. So yeah, there's so much. Even though the plot might not be moving that far forward, this was a filled episode with information. I just said yeah, that like so Yoda. That was weird. That was all backwards <laughs> and twisted. <laughs> yeah, no, this this is a... Uh, loaded episode of television. I, yeah, it may not move the main narrative forward very much, but it really is expert storytelling. And uh, I just, I love this episode so much. So after we have that moment with Sizemore and Maeve and, you know, he's getting her help, we then get back to Akechida and Maeve's daughter. And he says, are you afraid of me? And he starts telling a story about his family. And this is where we first get introduced to this idea that Akechida is speaking both English and in Lakota. And again, it's one of those things, upon first viewing, we don't quite know why, but on second and third viewing, you totally understand why. And uh yeah, this is just another incredible scene where he's telling this story about you know, Kohana and the rest of his family and, you know, what that was like when he loved this woman and the people that he was with. It's just this very rich backstory that's being told very briefly. And one of the great successes of this episode is their ability to mine emotion out of such limited time that these characters have. Yeah. And I love the way and I'm not going to go into it yet. <laughs> I always I always jump too far ahead. So I'm holding myself back. But I love the way that the two different languages that he's using the English and Lakota. I love what how the it reveals itself as to why. 
And I didn't fully get it until the second time I watched it. Yeah, because there's stuff that happened in the later episode. I was like, wait, wait a minute. That doesn't seem, that doesn't make, wait a second. So then it was like, okay, hold that thought, go back and watch it again. Now it makes sense. It was like, I had an inkling, but then it sealed the deal the second time I watched it. Yeah. And we get this backstory of Akechida and his family and how they're living in this very kind of peaceful way, they're, you know, kind of living off the land, they're just doing their thing, and then all of a sudden, a catcher just stumbles upon the incident from before the park ever even opened when Dolores killed Arnold and killed all the other hosts and then killed herself. The, uh, one of the key moments that we saw in season one, uh, you have a catcher walking through the aftermath of it. And back in season one, we saw that scene where Arnold had the maze in his hands and he, that little maze toy and he puts it down uh, right before he goes outside and Dolores kills him. But now we see Akechita go into that bar, pick up that maze toy, and it seems to be the thing that awakens him. Right. I think that the show is just is using that maze and person symbol as as a metaphor as it's not i i don't think it's i don't think it's meant to be taken literally like he sees that and then all of a sudden he's awake i i want to say that it's a little bit deeper than that but to make it seem simplistic it's it's being portrayed as something literal, but it's not. Does that make any sense whatsoever? Well, I think that one of the things the show has been really good about doing is kind of relativizing the trigger moments of consciousness. Where it's not necessarily one right. thing. It's a culmination of things that have built over time. And there are little triggers along the way, but... Each host responds to each trigger differently, no different than an actual human being would do. People respond to different stimulus differently, right? right? So uh, I think that's the same thing that's going on here. The maze didn't necessarily work on Dolores in that sense. The maze was kind of metaphorical, but in Akechita, it also has seemed to awaken something within right. him. But it also it seems to indicate that there was always kind of something there. Right. I also think what's really interesting here is the fly that lands on his arm as he's looking at yeah, the Yeah, I noticed that as well. And it made me think of the moment um, where Dolores had the fly on her in season one. Mm -hmm. And when the fly landed on her Absolutely. at the end of season one, she kills it. Right. And and Aki right. doesn't and, even pay it any mind. Yeah, I mean it's one of those things where it's kind of the flies always seem to indicate um, you know, death and decay in season 1, but I think here they're kind of showing that he is in fact alive, that he is kind of a sentient being to a certain extent. And yeah, he doesn't kill the fly the way Dolores right. did. So the trigger is what's really kind of interesting to me. And we see then that the 
symbol of the man in the maze kind of becomes a thing for a catcher where he starts drawing it everywhere. And one of the interesting things about that, and we talked about this way, way, way back in season one, when we were, you know, theorizing about what is the maze? What is the maze? And we talked about the man in the maze myth in the legend of Iatoi, which is like a native American legend. And interestingly enough, here is the maze again showing up to tell a specific story yeah. about a Native American tribe. So it was kind of like an interesting way that they went about repurposing that story, but gave it back to um, its cultural home. The other thing about that that I think is worth talking about is... They pull Akechida in to repurpose him. They take him away from his family. They you know, basically make him a savage. And when he returns, when he's put back into the park as this ghost nation warrior, um, you know, he's, he's very different. He's separated from his family. And one of the things that I think is really noteworthy about that is it kind of speaks to a certain level of cultural appropriation where you have you know this this essentially peaceful man who lives off the land but they need him to be a savage so they bring him in they slap some paint on him and they call him a monster they've basically bastardized his cultural relevance exploited the most aggressive aspects of his culture and turned him into that and that is a very um i don't know it's a very modern society thing to do yeah that was something that was kind of addressed in the article uh that was with the actor and he just he made it very clear no this is this is a fictionalized tribe it's not based on anything um at all it it's it's a tribe that was created by this you know writer that created this park you know this it's not based on any type of reality we are using the lakota language and that is something that he um growing up that he actually had experience with his mother spoke lakota and so it's he's not he said he's not fluent in it but it's something that he um was familiar with and grew up around and he actually reached out to his mother um for advice and and just to make sure that everything in the show was accurate as far as the language goes which i thought was kind of cool um, but yeah, he was very, he was like, no, this is, it's fictional. It's not based on anything. And, um, you know, it's like they established that in the show that it's something that's being created. It's not based on, um, right. I'm more talking about society's way of so, taking a culture, embellishing on the worst aspect, aspects of oh, it, no, and I then agree. kind of exploiting it, Yeah, which is exactly what the Westworld designers kind of did to Ikechida in, in this episode. Right. Oh yeah, everything in Westworld is based off of stereotypes. You know, it, it's, it's, um, I mean, even to, you know, with the gunslingers and the cattleman, the rancher's daughter, and it's just this whole, it's all stereotypes. Um, but one of the things I thought was really interesting 
is not necessarily not or not just what Aki was saying during the scene, but what the technicians were saying uh, as they were getting ready to change his programming and to change his character and um, as to why they were doing it. And it, they made it seem as if they kind of had to do it in a rush. So they're getting ready to open and they've all of a sudden decided that they want to change him. And one of the guys is like, you know, are we just going to, are we just going to rewrite everything? Like when the other person says, no, just leave everything else in there. We'll just bump up his stats already. So that right there is kind of, why he's able to remember everything because they didn't like completely wipe him clean and it seems as if they don't and they haven't done that and i guess that that is probably um i don't know if that's some kind of a clue to something or um i don't know but that's just something that just stuck out to me that's like that's why this is this why there's this constant remembering because they didn't take them back down to zero. You know, they didn't wipe them clean. It's they just kept building upon what was originally programmed in there. So it's like it may be, maybe have been dormant. And some were able then like he like Aki was able to access that and kind of remember those fragments and then build upon them later. But then others like for whatever reason, just ignored it or whatever, shoved it aside or you know, whatnot. But that, I don't know. That's just a little nugget that yeah, it stuck with explain me. why it took Dolores and Maeve so much longer to kind of attain consciousness, whereas Akechit has been conscious the entire time. Maybe because he didn't right. have some of the same things. He didn't endure living the many lives as much as Maeve and Dolores did. Maybe that kept him, you know, it made it made the kind of path to consciousness easier for him. You know what? That's something that I didn't really think of because, yeah, later on when, you know, he again, I'm, I'm I'm jumping ahead. But later on, I mean, we find out that he had been he hadn't been updated in like a right. decade and even just built upon that. So, you know, everything that was there still stuck. Right. Right. So. After Akechida becomes this kind of Ghost Nation character, we see him kind of riding along because he is by nature curious. He is by nature an explorer. And he comes across Logan, who is still tied up naked after being sent on his way by William way back in season one. And when he comes across Logan, he's delirious. He's muttering incoherently, happens to talk about doors in the wrong world. And this seems to be the next step in Akechita's path to consciousness. Because it seems to awaken something inside of him. Right. And this it's not the first time that he's encountered Logan. If, right. if I know you remember, but if anybody listening remembers, uh, back at the beginning of this season, there was that whole scene where we see Logan and he's, you know, going to have this demonstration. Well, Aki or Ketchida is him and Angela were the two people that approach Logan to bring him into the demonstration. Yeah, yeah, and I think that uh, 
it's, it's again, it's just more building blocks for him. And having that little bit of background with Logan, I, you know, we, we've seen how those memories have helped the hosts. We've seen how it's helped Dolores. We've seen how it's helped Bernard. And we're now we're seeing how it's helped a and, and this meeting with Logan, this, this coming across him, you know, out in the desert, it seems to be the next step in his evolution because now he returns back to his old village uh, as part of some loop that he's in. And he sees Kohana and he talks about how the past was calling him. He recognizes her by her eyes. It's a very lovely uh, scene that's happening there. It is. And it just occurred to me, there's two things that have, that could have prevented all of this happening. One, anytime a host comes down, uh, to be updated or, um, yeah, has their storyline changed? They need to be completely wiped down to zero with nothing and built from scratch. Two, uh, if you're a guest of Westworld, you can only go once. Because if you come back again, there's a chance that one of the hosts will remember you from before. And it, <laughs> and it causes all kinds of rifts. So those are right. the two things. If you're planning on doing some kind of, you know, sentient being or, you know, lifelike, host robots just remember those two things and i think you'll be okay (laughs) (laughs) absolutely but i I think i think one of the things that nolan and joy are trying to say with this show is that love is one of the things that is tied to our humanity yeah and for these characters their main drive for a lot of them is love it is their attachment to other people. It's the thing that seems to, in the minds of the creators of this show, seems to really define our humanity, is our ability to love. And I think that's why this episode works so well. I mean, this show is run by a married couple, and it's kind of like their, it's like their treatise on, on love and humanity. And I think that's why, you know, even what you were saying, if they, if they wrote this in such a way where it was much more rigid, because of the way the showrunners feel about the concept of love, I think it would still be the driving factor around the host sentience. Well, right. And not just love either, but suffering, you know, because that's been another theme of this. And, and it's brought up in this episode as well, that that suffering is what is allows you to grow. And... It's like those two things, love and suffering, are pretty much what they're saying life is. That's what life is all about. Suffering pushes you forward and like love, like ties you together. And I think that's just a beautiful message. And it's it's really true. Yeah. Now, while we have that scene with kohana and you know he talks about how the past was calling him we also kind of smashed cut to Maeve, who is you know lying on the hospital bed we don't really get much from her in that moment and then it cuts back to a ketchita who's kind of in his loop we've seen him killing this dude with the axe we saw him take the blood and put it on his hands so this is kind of like the second clue that there's something um something odd going on yeah, that was such an interesting cut that while he's talking about this, they cut to her for a second and then cut back in the middle of this story of his with 
um, you know, like I said before, it's like I didn't understand it when I first saw it. But then the second time, it's like, oh, my gosh, this is right. so good. Because they still haven't given the game away at this point. But if you're paying attention to the way the show is edited, you could kind of have picked up on what's going on at this point. But they still haven't given away their biggest clues yet right. as to what's actually happening in this episode. Now, we then get a scene of Ikechida looking for a way out. He's exploring. He ends up finding the Valley Beyond. Now, this also seems to confirm that the Valley Beyond is actually a facility. Yeah, every time that I've watched this scene, I'm trying to figure out what we're looking at. Right, me too. And I'm not exactly sure just yet. Yeah, it just looks like they're building a giant building. There is a door that apparently leads to our world, maybe. Although, I'm not sure. I think that uh, there's still a possibility that whatever's behind that door might not be what people expect. No, it's, it's, <laughs> they always have some kind of an ace up their sleeve. Yeah. So after we see that discovery of the Valley Beyond, Akechida has this kind of awakening and he believes that he now needs to take Kohana and go through that door. They need to run away together, run off together. So he sneaks into his old village, abducts Kohana. Not the most romantic thing. Guys, don't actually do that. That's not cool. Um, but, when he takes her to this uh, this place where they go to, he kind of wakes her up. And he does so by repeating the lines that they used to say to each other when they were together, where he says, you know, take my heart when you go. And, you know, she responds, take mine in its place. This scene was so beautiful. It really was. Oh, my gosh. And well, the actors play it so well. I mean, he, he plays it perfectly. There is this kind of gentle nature that he conveys in this scene, this kind of harmlessness, but it's, it's also a, a, attentive to her fear too. Right. Yeah. Just the way that he walks and how he's holding his body. And then when he's got the knife and then he kind of flips it where it's like, no, I'm not coming after you. But, you know, he holds out his other hand uh, and then her reaction. There's one moment just before, um, well, it's as he's walking towards her where she has this, it's almost like she has this, this, you can see, like see it happen. You can see the spark in her happen. And this is before he says the line to her. It's just her uh, performance of this realization that happens, you know, after he says the line and then she is kind of in shock because she has, she knows the response to that. And, oh my God, it's just so beautiful. My heart melts every time I see it. And it's just gorgeous. I am a sucker. I am such a sucker for a really good love story. Like a really good one. I'm not talking like lifetime bullshit, lifetime television crap. I'm like really good. This is really good. Well, there's something in here that I think lends uh, a little bit of assistance to what you talked about. And it's it's the way the camera is placed on Kohana's face. Because one of the things that happens, and I don't know if this was just a happy accident or if it was done intentionally, 
But as she starts to kind of reach that awareness as to who a Ketchita is, the light, like the, the wind kind of blows off of her hair and her face is now fully lit by the sun. And it's the first time that we've seen her face fully lit by the sun. And it's a visual representation of like an enlightening, like she's literally figuring things out. There is a visual clue being given to us by the cinematographer there. Oh, so good. And then just when you think that it, it can't get any better, they walk to that same place where he saw, you know, the valley beyond. And the shot here, to it gives me goosebumps because it's one of the most stunning pieces of cinematography that I've ever seen. And it's super subtle, and you have to pay attention to it. But when they're standing up on that ridge, Kohana turns to look at Akechita. And as that happens, as she turns her head, and I swear this is in there, if you watch the camera, the camera will move just about an inch to the left of Akechita's head, revealing a huge beam of sun right into the camera lens. Yeah. It is a stunning, goosebump-inducing shot. It is so smart. It's so perfect. To to get that shot, you have to you get very few chances. You can't just reset and do that. That can only happen at a certain time of day. So that means the actors have to nail it. Everything has to be in place. So much has to go right to get a shot like that. And that shot just gave me chills. I thought it was absolutely stunning. Yeah, gorgeous, gorgeous. That's like lightning in a bottle right there. Yeah. I mean, it is just, it is just epic. Now, this is also, now that shot, I actually do, I do believe I missed one thing that happens there where, um, Kohana then gets taken and she's replaced. And one of the, uh, things that happens is that a catcher goes back to the village to try to, uh, you know, take Kohana back. He thinks they're just going to put her back where she was. But it turns out there's somebody else there. And when he realizes it's not her, he runs off. And one of the great things that I love about this scene, again, how we have seen light now used to um, convey the awakening of a character, when a catcher leaves that tent after finding out Kohana's gone, he's in the dark. He's lost in the dark. Yeah. And so they're using light to convey um, the emotional state of the characters. Yeah, he slinks away. He slinks away back into the shadows. So good. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really awesome. And right after this happens, we get those light and shadow shots. Um, Gohana's been replaced. This is where things start to get really interesting because... He talks about having to go on a journey to find her. And then he says, you know the journey I mean. Right. Which seems odd for him to say that to Maeve's daughter. Right. Stick a pin in right. that. Yeah. And he talks about, you know, they, they, they show him going from town to town, you know, confronting enemies. He's been injured. He's been beaten. He's been stabbed. He's been hurt. 
And of course, uh, he comes across Maeve's daughter who helps him. And he talks about how you saw the real me and you took me in. And he switches back to English there when Maeve's daughter helps him. That's another big clue as to what's going on. Right. He's saying when I was at, and he says that I, I don't remember exactly what he says, but he's talking about that he was in his darkest hour. And then he says in English, he's like, and then when you found me in my darkest hour, you helped me and that gave me like the drive to go on. And then he goes back into speaking in Lakota. And at first, when I saw this scene, I figured he wanted to make sure that she knew how important that was. So that's why he said it to her in English. I wanted you to know for certain how important you were. That's, you know, that's why I'm going to say it in your native language. But that's not necessarily the case. Stick a right. pin in that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then, of course, Aketra has this realization that he'd been searching for her everywhere, but he needed to go to the other side of death to find her, which is a, a, such a purely romantic notion in and of itself, right? Yeah. And so he dies. He he allows himself to be killed. And then that, that leads to him waking up in the lab. And we get all this interesting backstory about Akechida. For one thing, he is an Alpha 2 model, which means he hasn't been updated in almost a decade. And that means that they only update them when they die. And that means this is the first time he's ever died. Yeah, and this is the journey that he was speaking of. And Maeve, of course, went on that same journey back in season one, where Absolutely. she, yep, where she purposefully, you know, had herself killed over and over again so she could continually go down into the Mesa or go down into the behavior labs. Yeah, and, and there are so many parallels between this scene for Akechida and the stuff that we saw with Maeve. Yeah. Where, you know, now we've got Akechido, he wakes up after the techs are gone, or he's kind of been awake the whole time. We get this really amazing cover of Heart Shaped Box by Nirvana. And I absolutely love the way that you are just transfixed with that sunbeam scene. And this one is so simple, but I absolutely love the shot of him going down the escalator. Yeah, so I love that bit so much. I don't know why. It's so simple because he's just in silhouette and it's just the simply lit, you know, escalator, heart-shaped boxes playing. And it's just, it's so bizarre. And I absolutely love that scene. Yeah, it's that shot is also very symmetrical. It has this kind of surrealist feel. It's yeah. like this kind of native warrior in a modern world kind yeah. of thing. It's this fish out of water, um, you know, kind of held up right there in the middle of the frame. I love it. And yeah, so his journey here, similar to what Maeve went through, when Maeve walked through the areas of the Mesa and saw the hosts that had been killed, and now... Akechida is making his way into cold storage and he finds Gohana and he thinks he's going to take her and get her out of there only to find that she is non-responsive. Yeah. Yeah. Just as much as I am a fan of a really good love story, I am also a big fan of tragic love stories. Mm. <laughs> I find them so much more true to life. But um, this scene, 
I thought was really powerful as well. When he has this realization, when he has this, um, this change in what he thinks his, this realization that he has down there. I loved this. It's stunning. And one of the things that I've noticed about what the makeup artists on this show do, and they do it so well, is from far, when you see the other hosts in cold storage, they do not yeah. look like real people at all. There's this kind of like latexy quality about them. Like they don't look like they're real at all. Now that it doesn't hold up like when Akechida gets to Kohana, but there's a long shot of her when he first sees her. Yeah. And she doesn't look real at all. It's really impressive. And the way he performs this scene is just so incredible. The heartbreak on his face. It's just such tremendous work uh, for an actor. Yeah, I agree. It's, you know, I've mentioned it before that there's, there's a difference between performing for TV and film as there is, then there is like on stage. And with TV and film, what you do with your body and your face is so much more subtle because that camera picks up everything. And, and in so many ch cases, the camera is right in front of your face. So you don't want to express too largely, whereas on stage, you want to be really expressive and really big because you want this, the people all the way in the back to be able to see it. But when you're performing for TV and film and that camera lens, this giant black empty eyeball is looking right at you, you don't have to do very much. And it's just beautiful what he is able to do and how he is able to convey this and so much emotion. And again, with, without saying anything because it's a voiceover, you know, and it's just heartbreaking and hauntingly beautiful. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's so the performance good. here is incredible. It's just, it's just, yeah, this show is such a showcase for actors and it's just, always impressive if you like acting if you want to see great actors this is really a show that is the thing you need to be watching uh we also get a catch up returning back to his village to reveal this um you know that that their loved ones are in uh cold storage and it, it's actually prompted uh prior to that scene it's kind of that scene is kind of prompted by uh, in uh, an awakening or a moment an epiphany a thought that a catcher has in cold storage. And he says the line, yeah. um, that was the moment I saw beyond myself. My pain was selfish because it was never, um, because it was never only mine. And he says for everybody in that place, there was somebody who mourned their loss. Yeah. Whether, really whether, beautiful. whether they knew it or not. Right. Yeah. And, and, that to him kind of lets him know it's like, oh my gosh, there are people that are are mourning and they don't know why. Or, you know, each one of these people were tied to other people and I need to somehow let them know that 
everyone that they've loved or that's gone is is here. This is why you're in pain. This is oh god, it was just so good. <laughs> it was so well written yeah. and and so it was conveyed so much simpler than I am doing so poorly to try to do right now. <laughs> yeah, and this is also kind of uh, like the the real founding of Ghost Nation, I think. This is where Ghost Nation kind of starts to get their mission statement. This is where they start to get their um, their identity from. Because it's the last time we ever see any of those villagers as just villagers. The next times we see them, they're always as Ghost Nation. They're always wearing the face paint. Now, after this scene, we then go to a scene with Maeve and Lee Sizemore and... This scene really surprised me, actually, because we have, you know, Sizemore basically telling Maeve, you deserve to be with your daughter. You know, you deserve to be there looking out for her, to be there taking care of her. This is a very sweet scene between these two characters. Uh, Maeve hasn't said anything yet. No, she hasn't. And uh, and she's just, she's filleted like a fish. Yeah, laying there. makeup is so good. If you yeah. get a chance to look closely at that wound, it actually, you could see her pulse. I know, I know, it's so good. All um, those great details. Yeah, really, really good. And I have enjoyed Sizemore so much more this season. I just did not like him at all. And I am very happy to see the arc that his character has gone on. Yeah, it's a it's a touching scene. I I don't know, you know, I I think there might be people out there who think that maybe this is part of a a con game that he's playing. I don't believe that at all. I think this is actually sincere no. from him. No, I think it is too. Um but it's it's difficult. I I I think he he brought her there on good intentions. But it's almost like the worst thing he could have done right. too. Right, because then the tech comes back in, basically yeah. says that they want to, you know, they want to use her for something. It's up to Charlotte Hale what they want to use her for, but uh, the data that she can provide, the fact that she has that admin access is going to be important. Yeah, and I'm afraid that they are, in in essence, going to try to weaponize her. Yeah. I, I, I guess in a metaphorical way. I mean, I'm not talking like they're going to make her be a gun, but you know yeah. what I mean. Yeah, I think Maeve's character is going to go one of two directions. Um, Maeve is somebody who has these kind of, even though her powers are technological in nature, they can all be explained away through probably computer science, right? But she's kind of a mystical character in nature, and mystical characters tend to either become more powerful or less powerful. Um, yeah, she's basically has the ability to airplay. Like, yeah, like <laughs> she'll either lose her ability to do some of the things that she can do, or she will ascend to some higher level of power. Yeah, and everything that's happening right now is what Dolores uh, in the last episode knew was going to happen. She's like, you know, once they discover that you have this ability, you know, you're going to be in so much pain. and It's going to be horrible. Let me relieve you of that. Let me, you know, prevent that from happening and that's when it's like Maeve knew what she was getting into she knew this was what was going to happen but that was her only chance to have any kind of a chance to fulfill her promise to her daughter yeah now and I'm wondering well I'll save this till the end I'm going to stop myself okay <laughs> I'll, I'll wait till later 
So we, we jump back to Akechida and he is sharing this symbol. Um, you know, one of his lieutenants there is basically, you know, he's, he's sharing it with him, trying to cause an awakening. That's essentially where the idea to, um, carve the maze under the scalp comes from. Yeah, now we know where it came from. We were wondering, was that something that, that Arnold put there? Was it, like, why would the host have that in their skull? It doesn't make sense. Now we know. Yeah, it was a way to try to hide their attempts at awakening. Now, we also have a scene where we have a Akechida basically saying that he tried to, he, you know, he's still speaking in Lakota. He says, I wanted to help you too, but things are often misunderstood. You know, I, that he tried to keep her safe. And we get this cut from that scene to the scene with Maeve and her daughter. And Maeve tells her daughter, nothing and no one will keep me from you. And she says that she promises. So that's the promise that Maeve made. Right. You know, we know that Maeve made a promise. We know she said that before. Um, and that is the promise that she made. So Akechida is basically saying that he was watching over, you know, Maeve and her daughter, but the man in black was watching too. Well, one of the things that I think is interesting, um, you know, that he says that in this world, things can be misunderstood. Where earlier in the episode, uh, right after Akechida or Aki uh, discovers this symbol, um, or after um, and after Maeve's daughter assists him, he gives her a rock with that symbol on it. And when... Maeve's daughter, who we don't know her name. She's never, there's never been any name that's been given to her, her I don't think. Um, so when she hands it to Maeve, she says, the ghost gave this to me and says it's a warning that he's going to be watching us. And of course, Maeve takes that as a threat. Yeah. Cause this, this, cause it looks like it's, it's, uh, was painted in blood. You know, this is a warning. I'm going to be watching you. And so, of course, when he shows up, she's thinking, oh, gosh, he's going to try and kill us. You know, and that's how it was misinterpreted, because he gave her that symbol. Yes, to war to warn her, not from himself, but to warn her. Um, about, you know, this world not being the correct one, like the bigger, the bigger picture, the bigger scheme, and that he's going to be watching, meaning that, you know, he's going to be making sure that they're okay. That's, right. you know, it's just, it's so cool how it's, has, it has this two meanings behind it. Well, we also saw when Maeve and her daughter were, when Maeve's daughter was shot by the man in black, when Maeve, when Maeve was shot by the man in black in season one, we saw her collapse with her daughter in the middle of that maze. Yeah. Now we know it was the Ketchita who drew that maze out there. Yeah. And maybe, maybe this was kind of one of the first steps in Maeve's waking up. That she brought her daughter into the center of that maze. Maybe she recognized 
maybe that that maze maybe seeing it stirred something in her well it did because that's uh the man in black actually talks about witnessing this exactly you know he says you know i've never seen a host act like this that she was like fighting to live and um you know the way that she was with her daughter he's like they've usually like when you shoot them they basically just die you know this one didn't right. want to this was this was something different so yeah this that Maeve seeing that symbol before all of this happened was kind of like her spark as well. Yeah. That, I mean, I think that's such a big point because, you know, there was this whole kind of idea when the man in black talked about that. He was, you know, there was something about Maeve that, that made her, that made him think that these, these hosts could be, could come to life. Right. That could fight back. And I think that is Maeve's initial awakening there is also another thing that's kind of hidden in this scene i think the big reveal of this episode happens in two pieces so there's another big clue in here as to what is lurking um in within the greater story here where he says i you know um nothing and we get the line nothing and no one could ever keep me from you and she makes that promise well then the next thing that we hear is that was a promise that you couldn't keep Right. So that's another context where it was like, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Because he's talking to the daughter, the one that made the promise. Stick right. a pin in that. Yeah. Uh, so we then have this meeting between between Akechita and Ford, which, man, do I love this scene. There's so much freaking subtext in yes. here. It's awesome. So good. We have Akechita just, just showing up as... Ford is apparently scalping some Ghost Nation guys, looking at the um, maze that's been carved into their heads. A catcher that comes up on him, and they start talking about it. He talks about, Ford talks about how the maze was a misbegotten symbol, and yet somehow it has led a catcher to this point. This is a great kind of standoff between these two. Yeah, so, so good. And... I I love the exchange. I just I love the dialogue that happens between the two of them. And I love um I don't know, kind of what happens to Ford as he's speaking to Akechita as well, where he in just the Anthony Hopkins subtle way is just kind of amazed. He's like, "You know, I've been watching you and it seems that you've been watching me too." And yeah. you know, well let me you know, you've been a flower growing in the darkness, which I thought was interesting because that's very similar to what Maeve said of um, Dolores, I thought. What, last episode? Well, Ford said that about Dolores in season one. Did he really? I don't remember that. Yeah, he said something very similar about um, about uh, Dolores's mind being a walled garden. Oh, right. Yeah. But it's it's so great to watch... Anthony Hopkins work his way through a yeah. scene because you can see Ford kind of re kind of working his way through it. You can see Ford processing what's happening because yes, he's been watching a As a matter of fact, I think that whole thing was designed to draw a out. I agree. Everything Ford was doing was designed to draw him out. I thought this was a confrontation that Ford was manufacturing. I don't think this is just, well, he just so happens to be, you know, right. Right there. Working in the middle of the park for some yeah, odd in reason. in the middle of the night, right. Yeah. 
posing a bear and a you know a bunch of ghost nation warriors trying to take down a bear like it's 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 definitely intentional the other thing about this is (laughs) if you notice what is on ford's hands what do you mean they are covered in a whole lot of blood blood is literally on his hands yes well yeah so I think that's a, a really great, uh, not so subtle bit of imagery there, but it's a great little touch. Um, we also hear him talk about how, um, like you said, he's been watching Akechita. He asks Akechita, you know, what he's been up to. Akechita talks about this new drive, and that is to spread the truth, and that he has kind of had this awakening ever since the Deathbringer killed the creator. It's 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 a really cool scene. It's a conversation in a way between man and God. It is a way for the um it, it's this it's a way for him to be able to I don't know, call out his creator in a way. Right. Yeah, the whole time I'm watching this episode, I have <laughs> I'm just I'm I'm thinking of all of the different religious aspects that this show plays with and what they're saying here as far as the hosts and um having these multiple lifetimes and seeing somebody and knowing that you have this connection to each other and i'm, I'm watching it and i'm like this is some shirley mclean shit that's happening right now <laughs> you know like all these past lives and you know i'm sure you have too that like when you there are people that you meet where you just like instantly have a connection with, or there's sometimes there's people that you meet and for whatever reason, you just instantly know that I don't like you. I don't know why, but I know that I don't like you. (laughs) It just, it comes to play like all of these, I don't know, philosophical things, you know? And I, oh, it's so cool. It's, it's so, uh, interesting what they play with the sandbox that they are playing in in creating this show yeah absolutely now the other big thing that we get from this this scene between Akechita and Ford is that Ford tells him when the Deathbringer returns and comes for me that's the signal for you to gather your people basically telling them to gather your people head for the uh the door head for this valley beyond yep and there we have the motivation and everything that's been going on absolutely it it keys it clues us in as to um how how far in advance ford knew what was going to happen yeah and kind of what his overall plan is so I just thought that was really great. Uh, Akechita also talks about, you know, finding the door before the Deathbringer returns and destroys them all. What if he goes, what if he goes to the Valley Beyond and he finds a door and he opens it and it's just like a, a broom closet? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> <not> wrong sure. <laughs> door. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the other thing about this door, right? Like, what does this really, is this really a door to our world? Or is that, is it like, is that literally what it is? Is that somehow a, a metaphor for something? It just seems odd that there's a door in the middle of this valley that just leads to the outside world, right? Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. Um, I'm hoping it's not just a literal door. 
Um, we'll see. And then how does this, you know, quote unquote key this, you know, whatever that Dolores was getting, how does that play into it? I'm not sure. Now we have a couple more episodes to get there, but there's still more to discuss in this episode. Absolutely. Uh, we have a scene of Emily showing up to get her father, take her from ghost nation, a catcher talks to her about how, you know, she knows his sickness and how he wants to make him hurt. And she says, well, he'll hurt more with me. So he's like, okay, fine. And then they just throw him on the back of a horse and they take him away. Now, one of the things I think is really cool about this scene is if you've paid attention to the music, you know that the man in black has a very specific theme that plays when he's on screen. That theme is uh, a very subtle, very melancholy version of that theme in this particular mm. scene. Yeah, I'm wondering what I'm wondering what she has up her sleeve cuz I mean she she basically tells a catch it I was like, "No, we have the same motivation. I want him to hurt too. But I'm going right. to I'm going to do way more worse than you." So I'm wondering, I was like, "Wow, really? What what is it that you have planned that's going to be worse?" And I'm guessing it's because it's not only going to be physical, but it's going to be uh mental as well. On a on another well, it level. Wasn't just to walk out the door like she suggested a couple weeks yeah. ago. So we seems we seem to now know that Emily has some dark intentions of her own, at least as far as her father is concerned. Right. Does it does it say anything about these characters that she learned Lakota to understand the Ghost Nation storylines, and that the Man in Black had never taken the time to learn Lakota? Does that tell us something about these characters? Um, yes. I mean, what exactly? Um, she pays attention to detail that she, um, has a wider understanding, I guess, that her interest and understanding isn't as narrow as her father's. She sees the bigger picture, I guess. Maybe. I'm wondering, I'm wondering if that leads her to any other kind of realizations. Like, I mean, is she is she thinking that her dad is almost genocidal in a way hmm. for failing to recognize the humanity in the hosts? Oh, I don't know. Maybe after years of butchering them, I don't know. If it's like that's like a loose thread that I know is going to be developed out further. I think that'll be addressed in next week's episode. But it is something that that I am thinking about going into that episode. Hmm. All right. Well. Stick a pin in that. <laughs> and then and then we get this last scene, which uh, it, this to oh. me was a goosebump inducing scene. And um, one of the great details about this, and it's another, it's, I don't know, I think we've said now four points where they've kind of given away what's happening. Yeah. The overhead shot of Maeve. This is really cool. I didn't notice this until the third time I saw it. The overhead shot of Maeve. She has this white sheet that's covering her, and she has it streaked with blood, and the streaks of blood look just like a catch at his fingerprints. Yeah. The handprints that are on his face. Yeah, it's very similar. Yeah. 
it is it is a, a huge indication of what is happening here. Uh, we know that Maeve in the scene we find out that Maeve has admin controls, and they could potentially use that to issue commands. So Charlotte Hale may be considering, like you said earlier, using her as a weapon of some sort. Yeah, they say that nobody, nobody has been able to get admin control ever since the incident happened, except for Maeve. Hmm. Yeah, and so uh, we also find out that Maeve has the ability to communicate via the mesh network, and sure enough, in that moment, Charlotte Hale looks at the tablet, she sees that she's talking to somebody right now, and that's where we get this uh, final gigantic reveal, if you haven't already guessed it, that Maeve and Akechida have been talking the entire time, and that every time Akechida was speaking in English, he was speaking to Maeve's daughter. But every time he was speaking in Lakota, he was speaking directly to Maeve. Oh my god, it's so good! Oh, it's so great. And, you know, he says, we'll we'll guard your daughter as if she were our own, and if you you survive, find us, if you don't die well. And then Maeve says, take my heart when you go. Uh, It's so fucking awesome. (laughs) Oh, goosebumps. Even even if you had figured it out by then, it's still a goosebump-inducing moment. It was. I remember the, the first time I watched it, I was like, wait a minute. He was talking to her. She's talking to him. Wait, I have, I have to go back and watch this. And so I can watch it from the beginning to see what those clues were. What uh, Now can I see what he was saying in a different way? Because it was directly to her, yeah. and I was like, "Oh my god, it all makes sense now." So, and it, which I guess is kind of a metaphor for this entire show. <laughs> it's going back yeah. and watching it again, and being able to see it, and you know, with new eyes, that, and and getting a different message. I guess there was there were some people that were confused by the scene and took it as when Maeve when Maeve said, "Take my heart when you go." that she was somehow actually some repurposed version of Kohana. No, I didn't take that at all. Uh, Yeah, there are a lot of people that did take it that way. That is not what's happening here at all. Uh, This whole episode has been him talking to Maeve, explaining his story. And by her saying that line, by her saying, take my heart when you go, it is her way of acknowledging him and showing respect and thanking him and, and showing empathy to a catch story. Well, and, and yes. So, yes, she's she just listened to this whole story. And he says that line at least twice in that story in, in retelling it to her. So, yes. Yeah, so she's acknowledging it. And at the same time, to me, that line almost is her blessing of them being able to, if I don't make it, take my daughter, too. I see it as that. Yeah. Like, that's my blessing. Take her. I've been listening to you. This is the easiest way for me to be able to convey all of that and wrap it up in a bow. Yeah. And the other thing that I love about this scene, we've talked about Tandy Newton endlessly on this show, but when he says, we'll guard your daughter as our own, 
the expression on her face changes just ever so subtly. She is the master of the micro expression. And just watch her face in that moment at the realization that her daughter will be cared for. It is, she's overcome with emotion while also being in apparent like physical distress as well. It's so good. Oh, it's, it's unbelievable. I like the way the shot is framed. I like the way it's scored. I think it is, I honestly believe this episode is perfect. I think it's, it's the strongest episode that they've ever done. There's just so much care in the storytelling yeah. and the little moments are executed flawlessly. Uh, I, I love this episode so much. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've said this about this show before, but, you know, this episode again is just, in, in a small, compact way, uh, echoes, you know, the entire show, the, uh, like, season-wise, the way that they unfold a story, the way that they kind of take you down this path, you think you know where you're going, they've been laying out clues all along that you don't get them, and with each one, it becomes apparent that something is afoot. Something isn't quite right. Like the context of what he said was a little bit off, where it's just like, wait a minute, that was strange. She wasn't the one that made the promise. You know, why did he speak in English and then go back to Lakota? It's like, wait, there's some things here that are strange. And then later on, they do the reveal. It's, it's kind of like, that's the journey that you're on throughout an entire season. And then this is just, you know, a micro version of that within a single episode. It's, <laughs> I love this show. Well, and b- because the show keeps you on such high alert, sometimes things slip by. For me, the first inclination that I had that maybe he had been talking to Maeve the entire time was the editing. Was yeah. when they had a shot of Maeve with a voiceover of a catcher. Right. And that was like the first thing that kind of signaled to me that maybe there was something going on. And then when I watched it a second time, I was like, well, damn, there are all these other places where they told us what was happening. Yep, exactly. But it's really cool to rewatch it with the knowledge that he's talking to yes. Maeve. Yeah, I definitely uh, went into it the second time with that and and was able to see the show in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. And there's just every time I've watched this, and again, I've watched it three times already since it aired. Um, I think that that last scene just, it works. The emotion is still there for me. Yeah. It still works. And it's just, a, it's just a wonderful piece of storytelling. There are some shows that I would criticize for doing this kind of like, you know, sideshow episode that they go back and do, but. Um, this one, I, you know, when you execute at this level, and I think that's what it is. I think it's purely execution. If it would not have been executed to this level, we would be complaining about this episode. But it was done with such heart, and it was done with such beautiful execution that it goes the other way. And you think, man, this this is my favorite episode of the series. Yeah. I don't have anything much more to say to it than that. Yeah. <laughs> And it, it does tee up, you know, this this kind of final race to the finale. We have, I think, all the pieces just about in place. I think we got some more Man in Black stuff that we're going to learn about. And then it's going to lead us into this uh, finale, this 
chase to the valley beyond. Yeah, there's what? Only two more episodes left. Wow. It's going to be exciting stuff. It will be because I'll be watching them in Scotland. Yes. (laughs) And we can't wait to hear all about Scotland. All right, so you guys have heard our thoughts on Westworld Season 2, Episode 8, but we'd like to hear yours as well, so hit us up on Facebook and Twitter at NerdflixChill. You can also subscribe on iTunes, listen on Stitcher, and if you are on one of those platforms, you can throw us a five-star review, and we would greatly appreciate it. You can also check us out at lrmonline.com. wanted to thank you guys for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. We'll be back next week with another Westworld Recap. Until next time, everybody, may the forest be with you because the night is dark and full of terrors. 